only to be intensely berated by uh, uh, an officer of the People's Police, um, quite senior he must have been, I think. And he was saying basically, you know, who do you think you are? Look at that hair, you know. I'd like to, I'd like to get you into the Fox Polizei, and then you, you'd find out about hair, you know. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Our interview today is with Frederick Taylor, who is the author of one of my favourite books on the Berlin Wall. Using official history, archive research and personal stories, he has produced one of the definitive books on the Berlin Wall. Now, you know I'm going to ask this, but if you'd like to help support us for just the price of a couple of coffees a month, you'll be helping to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So back to today's episode, James is on again and he speaks with Frederick Taylor who provides some great accounts of his personal experiences in Berlin as well as the story of the Berlin Wall and its eventual destruction. We welcome Frederick Taylor to our Cold War conversation. Now, you've written much on Germany and I've wondered, your, your experiences of Germany, how did you come to be so interested in this country? Well, it's one of those curious things. My, my mother grew up in South America, so I spoke Spanish. My father, though, was a South London working-class boy who had learned languages during the war. And so I grew up in a council house, but with parents who spoke foreign languages, which was quite unusual. Uh, so it didn't seem odd to me that with both French and German, when I went to the local grammar school in Aylesbury, Buckinghamshire, where I grew up, that I would uh, take on languages. And German just appealed to me as a language. And, of course, Germany is an enormously um, interesting country for all sorts of reasons, culturally, historically, and so on, and not just for the Nazis. So I just grew to, to have an affection and an interest in the German language. And then in the first year of my sixth form, which was 1965, I went to Berlin with a school trip and... That really set the cat among the pigeons and has ever since. And I think if we look at the show notes uh, for this podcast, we'll see some fantastic pictures of you uh, in true 1960s garb with your passport, just to show how little you've changed between now and 2019. (laughs) Uh, Not so much hair, a lot more everywhere else. Um, But yeah, the, the one picture is my passport when I was a sixth former going to Berlin. And there's another one of me in the 70s uh, in Berlin as a student, a graduate student. Uh, so, yeah, that was that. When did you first go to Berlin? August 1965. Uh, I was in the first year sixth. And we went in a, a smallish party. I guess there were about a dozen of us, including a German teacher and the German uh, teaching assistant, who was a student from Graz. Very nice guy. And we put up in a little hotel on the Askanische Platz uh, for five days, I think it was, and toured the city and went over into the east and so on. It was slightly one of those subsidized trips to show us how evil communism was. Um, 
we were went to a little briefing session with uh, what looked like a, a crew cut uh, German with a strong American CIA accent, uh, and uh, and then were let loose on the city and uh, found it fascinating. Obviously, it was almost exactly four years since the wall had been built, so it was feeling permanent, but still a bit wild westy in the way it felt, you know, you heard noises and you heard a couple of shots in the night. Once I remember we thought we heard. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it was a, a quite an interesting time uh, to see the city settling into this uneasy division and, uh, and checking out um, uh, how it was reacting to it. I mean, in both parts of uh, the city. What were your first impressions of the wall when you'd seen it? Because, Four years after it had been constructed, it was presumably looking a lot more secure than just some barbed wire. Did it did it shock? Did it horrify? What did you feel when you saw it? I'd seen pictures and I'd seen TV footage, so I was somewhat prepared. But, I mean, coming from uh, a, a, a market town in Buckinghamshire, um, uh, having not really gone to very many other places. I, I went to see my German pen friend when I was 14. Uh, but that's about all my foreign travel. Um, you know, something told me I wasn't in Aylesbury anymore. There was this thing, this barrier, then you kept bumping into it. You rounded a corner and there it was. And it was pretty mature by this point. I mean, it would be, it would mature even further in its hideous way as the years went on. But it was the classic wall with the watchtowers and the death strip and the, uh, the breeze blocks and the concrete. And, uh, so there wasn't, I would have loved to have been there if I'd been a bit older. I might have seen it when it was really um, just a bunch of barbed wire um, being guarded in a fairly ad hoc manner as it was in the first weeks and even months of its construction. But, yeah, it was there and it was fortified. And, yeah, it was shocking. Uh, One of the shocking things, of course, is how quickly even then one got used to it. Um, you, you, You kind of expected to see it there. Um, but, you know, it was scary and there were, you know, checkpoints and, and people wandering around with guns on the other side. And, and East Berlin looked a little bleak compared with West Berlin. Uh, even the bits you could see from West Berlin and from the Bernauerstrasse and from the Potsdamer Platz, where, of course, there were observation platforms. So we did all that and that prepared us uh, for the day we went on one of those one day passes um you know but like cinderella you had to be back in west berlin by midnight um with um mr kitts my teacher and the gang it uh it, it was a shock but again it's amazing how quickly one adapts to things it's one of the lessons i learned at that point and what were your experiences of east berlin when you went there was it do you notice a noticeable difference between East and West Berlin in terms of the people and, and, and the, the environment where you were? East Berlin was uh, clearly uh, it was much more militarized. I mean, there were, there, were, there were allied troops in West Berlin and there were um, uh, the Berlin police were, were armed here and there and, uh, and so on. But you went over there and A, it was bleaker. I mean, not so much had been restored from the intense bombing that uh, Berlin, including the center of Berlin, had uh, been subjected to uh, towards the end of the war. And uh, 
it looked bleak. I mean, uh, lots of the buildings had been torn down or bricked up on the border so that people couldn't escape through them or or, or use them as in, in any way as a hiding place or, or, or a place to dig tunnels. We'll get on to that later. Um, it was very heavily militarized. It felt that way. It felt that there were lots of people in uniform. Um, they were not particularly polite. It was a different feel. It was a totalitarian state, and you realize that immediately. They weren't. They were usually correct, but they were not friendly, and they were not um, not humorous. It, it was. It was a seriously um, undemocratic setup, and that was apparent right from the start. The people themselves were respectably, but on the whole, fairly poorly dressed. There was a lack of color. There were a few little shops, uh, showpiece shops here and there selling knickknacks. And there was a wonderful bookshop, I remember, uh, just up from the um, Friedrichstrasse station where if you wanted to, you could buy an extremely cheap copy of any work of Marx that you cared to acquire. I mean, it was uh, a real bargain. Um, I think they might have had an ulterior motive there slightly. Uh, and we ended up having uh, uh, an early supper at the at a building on the Alexanderplatz, uh, where the old working-class East Berlin begins, away from the historic center, uh, the Haustelera, which was a, uh, a building, you know, in, in as a house of teachers, which is the head of you know, the, 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 the state-run teachers' union. Uh, but it was open to the public to go in there and have, some, have something to eat or a cup of coffee or whatever. And I, I had quite long hair in those days, even, even when I was at school. It was a constant guerrilla war with the assistant headmaster about it, but somehow I sort of got through and got to East Berlin with this head of hair and uh, only to be intensely berated by uh, uh, an officer of the people's police, um, quite senior he must have been, I think. He was, I suppose, in his 40s and he had this amazing kind of uh, uh, imitation Brigitte Bardot girlfriend um, in tow. Uh, he'd had a few drinks, I think. And uh, I understood enough German. My German was kind of O-level, but getting somewhere uh, to uh, know what he was saying. He was saying basically, you know, who do you think you are? Look at that hair. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to get you into the Volkspolizei, and then you, you'd find out about hair, you know, and this kind of thing. I mean, I'd, 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 I'd met more rational people in the Aylesbury Conservative Club, to be honest. Um, but you know that that was an experience, and uh, and he didn't do anything. And Mr. Kitson, uh, my admirable German teacher, was there on hand to diffuse things a little. And we finally uh, rolled back over the border into West Berlin um, shortly before midnight. I guess it must be about eleven or half past eleven, and uh, feeling relieved. Uh, even then, you could feel this kind of claustrophobic sense in East Berlin. Uh, we, of course, could stroll back over the border any time we liked. Um, and you were acutely aware that the people you had met and occasionally chatted with and someone during the course of the day could not. And, and that was a real lesson. Going to that point about the people who could not leave their own country and turning to the, to the wall, the Berlin Wall, the inner German border, as perhaps we know it, but that wasn't the first wall 
that the GDR leadership built, was it? Well, there was a series of of barriers. I mean, a basically paranoid um, government which felt its own weakness. I mean, they were dividing up a country at the behest of the Russian occupiers. Um, there was always that sense of weakness. Um, other communist governments in Hungary and Poland and Czechoslovakia and so on could at least appeal to a certain feeble nationalism. Um, you couldn't do that with, with East Germany. You had to create some kind of weird supranational, non-national identity. The first time that they marked themselves off was by putting up a barrier down the length of the border with West Germany proper, several hundred kilometers going from the, uh, the Baltic down to um, northern Bavaria. They did that in 52. And incidentally, a few months after that, tried to persuade Stalin that they should actually start building barriers of various sorts, not perhaps a wall, but barriers inside Berlin too, which was occupied by the four victorious powers and therefore divided into sectors. And that's what gave it its unique uh, position in Germany and meant that the Western sectors remained, you know, not they were not part of East Germany, but part of this area ruled by the, the militaries of the Western powers. Um, Stalin seems to have assented to that, but then he upped and died in, in uh, early 1953 and the new leadership um, succumbed and decided they wouldn't build any kind of walls or extra checkpoints or whatever because uh, they wanted some kind of rapprochement with the West and they didn't want to annoy anybody. So that didn't happen. So still you could move between the sectors uh, in Berlin. The Russian sector, of course, was the largest one, and it was part of the German Democratic Republic, the um, East, East German Communist State. 56, there was the Hungarian uprising, and then something happened, which is not entirely coincidental. Um, the East German leadership, having seen how the Hungarian communist leadership had been rolled up in central Budapest by the rebels uh, in, in, in October 56, built itself a strange kind of fortified enclave just outside Berlin at Wandlitz, about uh, an hour from central Berlin by, by, by limousine for the party leadership. Um, and basically it was, it, it was an enclave of kind of pleasant suburban housing uh, surrounded by fences and walls and, 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 and a considerable armed presence where they would be basically safe from their own people. And there was another element there, uh, Walter Ulbricht, who was the uh, the communist leader at the time, a pre-war um, party boss in Berlin, actually, who had managed to escape to uh, France and then Russia and spent the war there and then was brought back in by the Russians as their kind of puppet um, leader of their new little East German um, state. He wanted his members of his central committee there where he keep an eye on them. Uh, he was, again, paranoia is a common state in East Germany. He wanted them there. He wanted them in the restaurant at night and in the bar where he could keep an eye on them. Um, 
And so Wandlitz became the, 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 the place where the East German leadership, uh, lived. I mean, it, 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 it's such a strange thing. I don't know if there's an equivalent elsewhere, even in the communist world, but that's what it was. And it had, even had its own dedicated lane. You came out of the settlement of Wandlitz and you slipped into a lane which is exclusive to the party leadership where you followed that lane all the way into the um, middle of East Berlin to the, where the government offices were, and no other uh, citizens of the GDR were allowed to use that lane. It was quite a privilege. I think it was something similar in Russia, actually, where the apparatchiks uh, had a, a lane dedicated to their limos when they went into the Kremlin. So there was this, 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 this paranoid feeling, this feeling of trying to suppress things with barriers. And as the 50s went on and it became clear that it was either the – whole, the whole question was whether, whether you wanted to allow West Berlin to continue to exist. In some ways, it was a benefit to the Russians to have it because it gave them a contact with the West through the um, joint responsibilities that the military leaders who technically ran Berlin, the victorious allied militaries, had. And it gave various legal potential for having influence in the West. You had your military attaches. The, the Western powers had their military attaches inside the Soviet part, and they had theirs inside the Soviet. So it was, it, it, it was a way of kind of retaining some kind of control. And also, it must be said, as Khrushchev, uh, the Soviet leader who liked to uh, uh, use uh, his uh, little South Russian uh, peasant humor uh, whenever possible, um, said, you know, Berlin is the testicles of the West. If we want to cause them some pain, we just squeeze. <laughs> so they were constantly threatening it um, more or less seriously all through from about 1958 onwards, running into 1960, 61. Because there was another problem, which is that you had to decide – who was in charge. Now, Walter Ulbricht was the Soviet puppet, but he was a, t a tough man, actually, um, a bit, uh, somewhat, somewhat too big for a small country in his way. Um, and he used his position. In other words, he was the Soviet's man who could guarantee their continued presence in their conquered territory in post-war Germany um, by running the state for them and keeping things quiet and could, in a sense, exert pressure on them in that way. Now, Ulbricht definitely wanted to take over West Berlin, in other words, to, to knock it out and have the whole of East Germany, including the whole of Berlin, under his control. And so there was a bit of a a, a, a behind-the-scenes battle going on between him and Khrushchev, who had wider intentions and could see the point of keeping West Berlin as a pressure point and allowing it to keep existing. Um, he, Khrushchev was prepared to put West Berlin as an independent city-state, as he claimed, in the middle of the Soviet zone, but to slowly detach it from its uh, its connections with the Western alliance. Ulbricht 
basically was much more ambitious. He wanted Berlin, West Berlin for himself. So all this was going on in 61, 60, 61. In the meantime, of course, East Germany was having serious economic and social problems. It was not able to give the population the standard of living or the freedoms or most of the other things that people like that um, that many of them wanted, particularly educated middle-class East Germans. And they were voting with their feet. And the way for them to get out of East Germany was to walk into West Berlin. Um, and roughly 2 million of them did that um, between 1949, when the East German state was founded, and 1961, when the crisis at the wall came to a head. Uh, you didn't do anything silly. You couldn't just walk into West Berlin quite. There were checkpoints. There were roving patrols of people's police. You wouldn't if you wanted to go to West Berlin and from there into West Germany, in other words, to, to become an emigre in West Germany. You would not walk the streets of Berlin with a large suitcase, for instance. That would arouse suspicion. You had to look as if you were just going for a walk or going to see your relatives in the west uh, of Berlin, which people could still do, and, and vice versa, uh, pretty much unhindered except by these you know, random checks and things like that. Uh, so all that was going on. And Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. The country was losing its its most valued citizens, its its doctors, its engineers, its scientists, uh, many of its academics, uh, and so on. And it was something it couldn't afford to do. Uh, by 61, uh, it had reached a crisis point where the country was threatening to become no longer viable. And this is where we get to um, the crunch point uh, of uh, the spring and summer of 61, uh, which is basically the whole time where we start talking about the origins of the wall. And is it mainly the, the economic decline, the, uh, the flood of talent out of the country that prompts Ulbricht to actually put in place uh, Operation Rose and start to build a very physical and permanent border throughout uh, throughout Berlin. Yes, I mean, Albrecht had wanted to do this for years. I mean, it was Albrecht who put the whole thing to Stalin back in 52 and would have, you know, pretty much closed off East Berlin as far as he could back then. Uh, but uh, 
Stalin wavered and then let him and then died and then the leadership, the new leadership reversed the policy. And Khrushchev, even in early 61, still wasn't that keen on uh, picking a fight with the West for a start um, uh, over this. He wasn't sure whether it was worth his while. Ulbricht had to persuade him and eventually he did. There was a big meeting and Ulbricht said, listen, we have to do this or you're going to lose um, East Germany. Uh, it's, it's not going to be viable, and what are we going to do about that? The Russians are very proud of their occupation in East Germany. It was a visible prize, a kind of prestige uh, symbol for uh, the war they had, as they saw it, in some ways very accurately, played such a enormously crucial part in winning on behalf of the Allied coalition uh, between 1941 and 45, They had ended up in the middle of the belly of the beast, in the middle of the former enemy capital, uh, uh, ruling the roost. And, and, and it was a feeling that most Russians were very, most Russians were very proud of this and wanted to continue doing so. So, Albrecht in that way had some leverage because he could say, well, if you want to keep your prize, if you want to keep your your German satellite state that symbolizes that victory you won, you have to back me. Uh, and in the end, they did. Um, and uh, so he was given permission to uh, to build a barrier uh, between uh, East and West. It's a, a huge undertaking, of course. Um uh, imagine the size of Berlin and doing that. How do they how do they plan it and do it in in secret? Because I would imagine the men and the materials required to build the mm. um, wall were considerable. Uh, yes, uh, it was an enormous undertaking. It must be said, Ulbricht had been planning it for years. Um, when when the Soviet ambassador, it was an excuse really to do it. Yeah, when when the Soviet ambassador said, "Oh, all right, then," um, sort of implying you better start planning. Albrecht said, "I have the plans here, basically," and he was very surprised. Uh, Pavukin, the, the the Soviet ambassador. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a totalitarian state. Um, it's easier to keep secrets in a totalitarian state than it is in a democracy for a start. But obviously they took precautions. They had to get together, for instance, an enormous amount of barbed wire, which is pretty much at a premium in the Eastern Bloc, actually, uh, valuable stuff. And what they did was to basically get together all this barbed wire and drive it around the country for a few days before the uh, actual construction began so that uh, you wouldn't see uh, all these building materials coming into uh, Berlin and start getting suspicious about something happening. And the same was true to, to a great extent with the few the breeze blocks and bits and pieces and bollards that they needed to put up some kind of initial barrier. As for the troop movements, well, yes, um, troops and, uh, and armed police detachments only really started to make a move um, on the evening of the uh, 13th uh, when, um, when the operation really got going. Um, and the secret was kept. Uh, there was high tension the numbers of 
people moving to the west had come up into uh, had reached the uh, 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 in the low thousands per day so clearly something had to happen nobody was quite sure what um many people in washington apparently thought that they wouldn't actually put a barrier down the middle of berlin but put a barrier around the outside of east berlin so that people coming in from provincial east germany into east berlin would be um uh checked rather than um the, the, than having a barrier between east and west berlin um that even, that that was an illusion that continued right till the last moment apparently um Anyway, so it, it was a matter of coordinating everything and bringing it together pretty quickly, uh, quietly, and closing the trap, so to speak, before anybody knew what was happening. Uh, there was some stuff dribbling through the the Social Democratic Party, which had been very powerful in the eastern parts of Germany before the war, and it's built up a skeleton organization after the war, despite Russian disapproval had, in fact, um, its own intelligence service inside um, East Germany uh, with loyal party members uh, over there reporting to HQ in the West uh, about it. And there were already a few indications, a dentist who said that he'd had a, a, high, a high East German official in and the East German official had been unable to resist a certain, certain nod, nod, wink, wink, big things are going to happen, you know. Uh, all, 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 there were several of these, 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 these reports coming through, but they didn't seem to go anywhere. They reached Social Democrat HQ, but don't seem to have then gone, for instance, to Willy Brandt, who was the mayor, Social Democratic mayor at the time, and certainly not um, to the Allied commandants before the actual building of the wall happened. The building of the wall was one of those things communist regimes tended on the whole, you just look at the Soviet war effort in the Second World War, they're terrific in crises. You know, for a short, intense period, they can work wonders. Uh, giving ordinary people a decent everyday life um, over the long term is something not so much. They're not so good at that. But they can do something like winning the Russian Civil War or winning the Second World War or putting up the Berlin Wall um, pretty well, actually. And it was a very efficient, organ <coughs> efficiently organized operation. Um, Ulbricht delegated it to a man named Erich Honecker, who had been the leader of the youth movement, the Free German Youth Movement. Uh, uh, during the late 40s and early 50s and was now the security secretary to the Central Committee. Uh, and as the name implies, I mean, the, the clue is in the title. He was the man who was going to um, provide the ultimate security, as it seemed at that point, for the East German regime through building the wall. So on the 14th of August, once the, the first barbed wire has been laid and the first few bricks are down, how did the Allies, how did the other three occupying powers of Berlin react, and how quickly did they react? The reaction of the Allies <clears throat> was surprisingly tepid. Um, you must remember uh, one basic fact is that, that they had about 12,000 uh, troops altogether between the French, the British, and the Americans in Berlin. Uh, they were surrounded um, 
the East German army was about, uh, I think, just under 200,000. There were half a million Russians stationed in East Germany. Uh, they kept out of East Berlin on the whole, the Russians, but they were there and could easily be called upon if necessary. Um, so they weren't in much of a position to put up any kind of military resistance against the uh, uh, Warsaw Pact forces but that they were immediately surrounded by. However, that wasn't really the point. Um, the answer is they didn't do much at all. Um, the leaders of their countries, the, uh, Kennedy was on vacation at the Annis Port at the, at the Kennedy family compound, it being August. Uh, Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, was shooting grouse in Yorkshire. Uh, and General de Gaulle, the leader of France at the time, was at his country home in Colombie de Deux Églises, uh, quite a long way east of Paris. Uh, so they were all uh, on the hop. The French foreign minister apparently was on holiday and could not be found um, at that point. Very hard to imagine that these and days. <laughs> and not just that. Um, Willy Brandt, um, who was the Social Democratic mayor and would become very famous uh, as, as a, as a uh, reforming German chancellor, uh, was at that time as a young man running uh, for the chancellorship against the veteran uh, leader Konrad Adenauer, who had run West Germany for the past um, uh, 12 years. Uh, he was on campaign trail and rushed back to Berlin when he heard the news of the barriers going up and, and obviously immediately people realized what was going on. Um, and he rushed over to the uh, a meeting of the Allied commandants and found that really they were thinking about issuing uh, a protest uh, and then apparently the American commandant then got on the phone with the State Department in Washington who and said, look, I'm going to, you know, of course, uh, we're going to fire off a protest. And they actually told him not to. Um, the Allies were not going to start a war over Berlin. Um, not – there was a – the red line was if – the East Germans and all the Russians took a step into West Berlin. That was a potential uh, uh, provocation or, 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 or which could lead to war. As long as they stuck to their own territories, so to speak, in other words, the bits just stuck to the kind of Soviet sector of Berlin and fortified that and cut that off, nothing was going to happen. Um, and the East Germans and the Russians were very careful not to go one inch over that border when they built the barriers. Kennedy said, when informed about it, well, the, this wall is obviously a terrible thing, but it's a whole lot better than a war. And pretty similar reactions came from uh, diplomats and politicians in both France and the United Kingdom, of course, in the end, they did the energetic protest. This is terrible. My God, this is awful. Why are you doing this? But backstage, uh, things were a little different. The, um, the uh, author and, 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 and political uh, operator, uh, François Mauriac, a writer who was a great friend of uh, de Gaulle's, cynically remarked um, when accused that um, 
he didn't he he didn't like Germans, uh, and that's why the French were doing nothing. Said ah, he said no. Of course, I'm very fond of Germans. I like I like Germany so much. In fact, I want two of them. <laughs> very diplomatic. So this kind of cynicism was basically it. As long as you don't try and take West Berlin. Okay, we, we we accept what you're doing, and that pretty much was it right from the start. There was there there were people on the western side, particularly in in the armed forces, who would have liked to have pushed back, who who thought that actually, um, if you had pushed back at that point, in other words, before things solidified, when it was just a a bunch of tumbleweedish um, barbed wire in most places, if you started dismantling it and said, we understand, I don't know why they're doing this, they're not allowed to do this, uh, so we're pushing this back for you, don't worry, and told the Russians, you know, what are your East German friends doing? This is, you know, against against the rules and so on. If they had pushed back... um, the Russians might have backed down. It's hard to tell. I think the Russian Russian prestige was pretty well involved by that point. I don't think it's. I think that might be a bit of a fantasy. But uh, no, I mean the 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 Western reaction caused any West Berliner to feel confident at that point of of, of their protected status. The immediate position was that the East Germans weren't moving against them, but the omens didn't appear good to the average West Berliner that their position was secure. Uh, Even actually, even Ardenau, who was a Rhinelander and a Catholic and didn't think much of anybody who lived um, uh, east of the Elbe River, was uh, didn't really care about it much either. I mean, he didn't want uh, f- 15 million uh, communist Protestants uh, much either. He was having enough trouble running East Germany, uh, West his his West German state, as it went. Um, so, all in all, the whole reaction, even as they say from the from from the West German government, although publicly, of course, they protested and said what an outrage it was was pretty sort of surprisingly relaxed. But what was it that made Kennedy change his mind or to consider it differently and end up sending his vice president and one of his generals on a very high-profile trip to Berlin? Then ultimately, and one could just imagine it, the the, um, American army sending in reinforcements up the corridor into West Berlin. What changed his mindset to sort of uprate it in terms of his response? Well, Kennedy, as I said, did not react particularly strongly to the news when it came in that this barrier was being put up in West Berlin. He wanted to be pretty clear that uh, that they weren't trying to actually, the, there was no threat that the, the East German troops would march into West Berlin. Uh, that became pretty clear. Uh, and but also, once 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 he got back to Washington, and the general started talking to him, and various other people got to him. I mean, there was a whole Berlin steering group who were a lot of veterans, journalists, and and diplomats who'd served in 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 Berlin over the years since the end of the war, and they made it clear that really something had to be done. You couldn't just do nothing. Um. And so in the end, uh, they decided they would first um, send the vice president, uh, Lyndon Johnson, 
over there, along with uh, General Lucius Clay, Lucius Dubignon Clay, son of a senator, uh, big deal general from the Second World War. He had also been commandant in the uh, American zone during the um, Stalin's last attempt to choke off Berlin, which had been in 1948-49 with the famous um, Berlin blockade, which the Allies answered with an airlift uh, and which uh, Stalin finally gave up 10 months later. Clay had been the engineer of that, uh, a tough, intelligent uh, uh, man and a Republican. Uh, so the Democrat Kennedy um, thought he would send his Democrat um, vice president along with uh, the tough General Clay over there and also send a, a, an army brigade um, through to West Berlin to reinforce the troops there. Purely symbolic, of course. I mean, even sending an army brigade in um, didn't create any kind of military advantage for um, the West in Berlin. You could probably hold the Soviets up for a day or two uh, if, if, if they were a bit slow off the mark. Um, but it was a huge symbolic gesture. And it also showed, because it had, of course, to go by land. It had to go by land through to um, Berlin from Western Germany, that nothing similar was happening that corresponded to what Stalin tried to do 13 years later in blockading the routes into Berlin. So it it was symbolic of Allied access to Berlin, which after some shilly-shallying, it was permitted by the Russians, and this brigade, armor brigade, trundled along the Autobahn to Berlin, arriving there um, about the same time as Johnson and Clay, and they had a parade, and 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 and, and the Berliners were were were, were comforted by this. Uh, I I I, th I think very few of them, again, uh, could completely ignore the reality of the relative strengths of East and West in military terms, but it was comforting. Um, the Americans had sent a, a large hostage to fortune, and that's what the West Berliners wanted to think that they were prepared to do at that point. So they showed up, and there was much celebration, and Lyndon Johnson was big and Texan and shook a lot of hands and uh, and. and toured around in an open Cadillac and, uh, and generally spread a, a, a feeling of combined toughness and good cheer uh, among the population, which was a huge uh, success in, in, in kind of bolstering uh, morale uh, in, 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 a, in a city that felt, obviously felt a half city, I'm West Berlin, that felt uh, very beleaguered at this point. Um, so he stayed for a, for a couple of days uh, and then exited back to the States. Clay stayed around for a while. And, and things started to settle in as much as you can say that. Uh, bad things were happening at the border here and there, but basically the situation was stable. And really what everybody wanted, nobody wanted Central Europe uh, uh, at the heart of which, of course, lay Germany and at the heart of Germany, Berlin, to erupt into violence and create 
uh, instability uh, uh, between East and West in Europe at that point. There was other things going on. There was the beginning of the problems in Southeast Asia, and nobody nobody wanted nobody wanted a fight in Central Europe at that point. So there was from this point on pretty much a standoff. Um, the, the, one of the very iconic images, I think, of the Cold War, certainly for me, is I think in October 61, when Claire is still there, the tanks facing off against each other across the border. How did that come to pass? How did main battle tanks come to sit in the middle of a city, you know, facing their guns at each other, um, when actually what that everybody is trying to do is, is, as you say, avoid that war? The Checkpoint Charlie confrontation um, two months after uh, the wall went up um, is quite a complicated thing. Um, there's reason to believe that, again, um, Walter Ulbricht with his, uh, his salami slicing and attempts to push the Russians in directions he wanted them to go um, – Despite his relative insignificance, he was, after all, their guarantor of control in the area. Um, was chipping away at the rights of allied personnel, soldiers and diplomats and civil servants and so on, of the allied powers, France, Britain and America, had the right that had been established since the end of the war to go through into East Berlin without having to show ID um, he started to chip away at that and uh, on one evening an American official was taking his wife to the theater in East Berlin and his car was stopped this is in October and he was told to sh asked to show ID he, of course, refused, and they sat there for quite some time until it became obvious he wasn't going to get to the theatre that evening, and he went back into West Berlin, and this started happening. This became a pattern, and there were incidents. Uh, you had American troops then, when it happened again, escorting the American diplomat concerned, who didn't show his papers, into East Berlin, in other words, a, a jeep load of armed American soldiers followed the diplomat's car into East Berlin. They drove around for two or three minutes and then back into West Berlin, I mean, to establish the principle. But the thing escalated and the East Germans kept stopping them and to cut a long story short, it wasn't that long, but to cut it short, because this is especially what you ended up with, you ended up with American tanks, the foremost of them with bulldozer blades installed on the front of them, sitting at Checkpoint Charlie, absolutely the dividing line between East and West Berlin in the American sector with Soviet tanks and the Soviets. This is the only time the Soviets came into Berlin, actually. Um, 
had driven into Berlin that same day and were facing them on the other side of the border. And they sat there for some hours. Nobody was quite sure what was going to happen if the Americans went forward and pushed aside the barriers that were stopping their people going into 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 East Berlin. Then who knows what the Russian tanks might retaliate with, perhaps gunfire. Nobody was quite sure. It was a very, very tense time. Meanwhile, of course, actually, and here we get to it, um, the East Germans had, Ulbricht and his East Germans had basically got the Russians into a bit of a jam because they had hoped, well, the Russians would be so embarrassed they won't back down, they'll have to support us in this. But actually, back channels in New York, in and around the United Nations, thought to have involved Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, and a, a, a Soviet journalist who he'd become pally with, and the way these things happened at the time, that um, basically negotiations, indirect negotiations, went on between Kennedy and Khrushchev through these intermediaries. And basically they came to an informal agreement. They were both pulled back at the same time. Um, and that is eventually what happened after these, this very tense, um, you know, uh, uh, these very, very tense hours through the night uh, at Checkpoint Charlie the tanks moved back on the quiet afterwards in in the end american officials did and other allied officials did did show basic id uh and honor was satisfied um on both sides i suppose you could say it was, but you see the russians didn't want a war even and it was actually for the americans this was the only point at which they might have been prepared to fight a war not in order to save Berlin from the, the hideousness of the wall and the watchtowers and the divisions and so on, but, of course, to defend American prestige. And that was basically that particular crisis, which was the closest, I think, the world came to a war over Berlin, certainly not over the building of the wall itself two months earlier, um, that the Checkpoint Charlie crisis you know, represented that. The odd thing was the Americans were always then nervous that if there was some crisis of another sort, that the Russians would essentially use Berlin again. In other words, it happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis, for instance. They were, they were very nervous in Washington that with the confrontation in the Caribbean going on, uh, the interception of the Russian ships and the missiles and all the rest of it, that the Amer that the Russians would again uh, try and squeeze the testicles of the West in Berlin and cause a distraction, and and they didn't. They didn't. Oddly enough, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, played itself out in the Caribbean, not and and didn't, in a sense, have any uh, any, any ramifications in Europe. So so for the next 28 years, the wall becomes an established feature within Berlin, leaving West Berlin an island in the middle of East Germany. As the wall becomes more and more fortified, I, I guess that the, the ways, and you, you write about these, that people found of escaping became more and more uh, complicated because they had to overcome greater barriers. Yeah, in the in, in the in the early days of the war, of course, quite a few people managed to escape one way or another. Uh, even the early months, so to speak, um, 
But of course, the barriers became more formidable and it became clear that the border guards had been, this was always denied by the East German government, but def- was definitely the case, had been ordered to, if necessary, shoot to kill. In other words, if somebody didn't stop and put their hands up, you, you, you shot them uh, before they could reach uh, the other barrier uh, on the Western side. Actually, oddly enough, what most tourists and Westerners thought was the Berlin Wall uh, was not really the Berlin Wall at all. It was, it was what the East Germans called the final marker barrier, um, the actual fortification was 60 to 90 meters wide and included alarms, barbed wires, dogs, uh, and so on. The actual wall, as far as most East Berliners were concerned, began at the end of a street in East Berlin with large warning signs. Um, and once you went over that, you had a quite a job to get to the the West, I mean, the most notorious incident was a year after the original building of the wall when a young boy called Peter Fechter and a friend tried to um, uh, uh, climb across the walls and run across the, uh, the death zone and then shin up the wall into, in, into West Berlin, which was like 10 feet tall, had a slippery rounded top. And I mean, it was really quite something. They carried a ladder. Uh, Fechter's friend actually did get across. Fechter himself was shot and uh, basically left to die in no man's land. Uh, It was quite some time before anybody came from the East German side to pick him up, by which time he'd pretty much uh, bled to death. I think he might have been just barely alive when they took him to hospital, but he died very shortly afterwards. It was a very notorious um, incident. and that did start to put people off. Um, you know, people, a train driver drove a train through the Berlin Wall at one point with, with a bunch of passengers and, him, and his family on board. Trucks went through there. Um, tunnels were built. That's a whole subject in itself. There's a recent radio documentary about Tunnel 29 from September uh, 62, which is an extraordinary story and was actually filmed by an an American NBC uh, television crew through its construction. Um, All of that happened. But by the 70s, um, really actual actual crossings of the Berlin Wall in one shape or form, you know, you have people going across and balloons and Lord knows what else. Um, Very ingenious, often failed. Uh, tragically, but sometimes succeeded spectacularly and heartwarmingly, so to speak. Um, it became easier to go to a third country on holiday, <laughs> like Yugoslavia, and then sneak into Hungary or, or Czechoslovakia or, or somewhere like that, which, although they also had iron curtains around them, were much less uh, intensely patrolled uh than the um the the border between east and west germany and east and west berlin uh and fake papers west german papers the great thing was of course that east germans and west germans spoke the same language so it was quite easy for an east german to pretend to be a west german so if you managed to get hold of some west german papers um forged or real um 
he could convincingly, he or she could convincingly um, uh, cross a border, uh, probably not a border inside Germany, where people were more attuned to accents and things that were going on, but and, and other kinds of borders uh, out of out of, for instance, Czechoslovakia or wherever into the West. Um, so this 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 became the new industry, and various people smugglers, you know. Uh, similar in some ways, some of them were quite sleazy. I mean, similar to the kind of people who smuggled refugees into into Western Europe and into Britain these days. Uh, so all that became a thing, and that was really the only method left by the seventies. Very rarely did anybody try to cross the actual wall. A, f- a handful succeeded. Most did not, and they would receive heavy uh, prison sentences uh, if caught, and their families would be disgraced and disadvantaged. So everything was done to turn the whole thing into a a, a game that nobody would want to lose. Um, the East German state became very good at um, intimidating its population, uh, to such an extent that um, that a very few serious attempts are made to get across the wall uh, in the 70s and 80s. Now, the, the version of your book that I have is from the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall. And I know that there's a new edition out at the moment. Um, with some updated material and as you sort of reflect on what you wrote and uh, your experience in Germany another 10 years later from the version that that I have what are your your feelings of the wall as we approach the 30th anniversary of it of its fall it's an interesting anniversary uh be- because w- when i when i when i wrote a, a little update uh, piece in 2009. Um, there was only the very beginning of the split sort of happened in the um, former communist countries, uh, including what used to be East Germany, um, the beginnings of the so-called liberal democracies in Poland and Hungary and the Goings on in the Czech Republic and 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 and, and, and Slovakia, uh, all these things became much clearly uh, into view uh, between uh, two thousand and nine and two thousand and nineteen, and also the situation in Eastern Germany itself, the so-called new federal provinces, as the West Germans always call them. Um, Things have deteriorated politically, it must be said. Uh, it looked 10 years ago as if, although there was quite a lot of um, discontent in the East, that basically the integration process between these two country, the, the two parts of the country that had such radically different histories for 50, 40 years of, everybody, of the lives of everybody involved, um, were growing together. Um, in some places they still are. Some cities in East Germany are doing well. Uh, Leipzig, Jena, 
uh, Weimar, uh, Dresden's kind of doing okay, but that's a special case politically in some ways. Uh, and various other parts, rural and small town East Germany, uh, are not doing well. Um, one interesting thing recently, actually, there was an interview with, um, a couple of German politicians, um, one of whom was a Western German politician and one who was an East German politician, uh, both nearing retirement and, and reflecting on things. And the East Germans said, well, something that occurred to me, actually, which is that given that a lot of East Germans were unemployed for quite some time after the war came down, there's a whole other story to be told about the mistakes that West Germany made when absorbing East Germany into its capitalist system. It left a lot of unemployed, embittered people. Uh, one of the reasons for the discontent that you see expressed in the vote for the far votes for the far right in the in the in in in, in the east of Germany these days is that these people are disadvantaged because they don't get full pensions. So they're the people who were like, you know, twenty five, thirty at the time of the um, fall of the wall, who you see, you, you know, you see celebrating and, and, and looking young and enthusiastic, are now, you know, fifty five, sixty. Uh, and I say particularly in in the rural and small town areas, um, feeling that they're facing an impoverished, um, impoverished old age. And, and yes, they have a, a type of political liberty that they thought they wanted, but they don't have the guarantees and, and, and that they actually experienced in East Germany offered its citizens, if they behaved themselves and were prepared to put up with a slightly reduced economic and, 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 and material horizons, um, cheap accommodation, uh, security, and and, a, 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 and and state support of a kind of fairly uh, comprehensive sort. Uh, that was that was that was that was the, your reward for accepting the regime, and I think that's why you're getting both nostalgia for uh, the old East Germany among particularly that age group, uh, and also, of course, the 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 the. Nostalgia for a rather even more sinister and uh, and and uh, regime that Germany had seventy eighty years ago. Um, it's a very tricky situation. It remains to be seen what happens in the elections in Thuringia uh, at the end of this month. It doesn't look good. It looks like the AfD, the far right. Um, uh, party is going to get about a quarter of the vote, um, as it already has in two other East German provinces in this last autumn uh, electoral period. Um, we'll see. Not everybody is. In, I mean, if a quarter of the population votes um, for the far right, it means that three quarters of the population hasn't. Uh, and nobody is really suggesting that um, that the the democratic state in Germany is threatened in the way that the Weimar Republic was threatened by the right in the late twenties and early thirties. But um, it's not what it was. I mean, I would have thought, you know, after the war came down and again, um, even 10 years ago, although there were signs, which I noted, I think in my piece, and I, I've written a rather, a, a, not entirely pessimistic, but a more a more nuanced um, update chapter in, in in the new edition of my book. Um, 
that's coming out at the end of the month. Um, but it, it's it's much more complicated than it looked, and it really proves that once you've dislocated a people, it takes a long time to put it back together again. It's uh, East Germany is not special in one way. I mean, nationalism uh, and a certain intolerance are widespread in the Western world, um, even in Britain, um, and certainly elsewhere in Europe as well. Um, the German version is what it is uh, and has its, um, has its origins uh, and it's and it's and it's and it's different expressions as a result of of German history since the 1960s. Uh, the Berlin Wall did divide the nation, and it was very traumatic. And even when it's had a chance to heal, it's been a lot lot slower than most of us had hoped and believed would be the case. I mean, I can remember the 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 exhilaration back in November 1989 when the wall came down and the feeling of hope. I don't think any of us really believed it was the end of history. Uh, even the man who said it was the end of history probably didn't really believe that either. Um, but it was it was something very, very positive that could only have a good outcome. Now we're all no longer quite so sure about the good outcome. Um, uh, rather like the French Revolution, this was it at that dawn to be alive, wrote Wordsworth in the early part of the French Revolution. And 10 years later, he would uh, never have thought anything like that. Um, it's not as extreme as that where we are with um, the situation in Germany as a result of its division. Um, but it's still a work in progress. I think we can safely say uh, you can't create that bigger hiatus, that bigger trauma uh, in a country and have it easily and quickly uh, resolvable. And, and the situation in Germany has certainly proved that. Indeed, it's had a long and rich history and probably will continue to do so for many years. Now, as a final question to you, Fred, um, the Berlin Wall, the Cold War in general, has thrown up uh, a plethora of books and films uh, fiction, non-fiction, and I will say at this point that I highly recommend uh, your book. I reread it again before we talked today and uh, enjoyed it as much on its second reading as I did on its first. Um, but what books and films, fiction, non-fiction, um, do you think particularly encapsulate the Cold War or the Berlin Wall? Well, you've got, you've got uh, Le Carre actually is very, very good. Um, I, his his Berlin, the Berlin of the spy came in from the cold. Is pretty much the Berlin I knew when I first went there as a, as a teenager. Um, he's terrific. Um, David Young's Starty Child is very good. Um, in German, the East German writers are the ones to read. Monica Maron and uh, the Divided Heaven. Um, which I think has just been retranslated, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It has. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just everything. But read the read the stuff that don't read the stuff that 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 knows what the that knows how the story ends. 
read 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 the stuff that was written while it was going on uh, because it gives you a much more uh, vivid and, and and real view of uh, uh, of how it was. Um, when you look back on something, yes, you can read, but it becomes a historical novel then, and that's a whole different thing. It's valuable. It's like history. It's valuable. Um, but by golly, read books that were written uh, while it was all going on. As I said, it, actually, Dayton is – Len Dayton, I'd forgotten Len Dayton. Of course, Len Dayton's wonderful on Berlin too. Um, so Dayton and Le Carre, if you're reading in English, and any East German writer you can get your hands on who's been translated into English um, for a view of what it was like within um, that strange and, and, and oddly alluring, terrible, cement-headed, but nevertheless strangely kind of... Uh, energetic state that the German communists built. It couldn't last for all sorts of uh, vi- reasons of economic viability and, and, uh, and, 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 and had so many unpleasant acts, aspects along with the positive aspects that that couldn't really survive either. But it's a fascinating country, East Germany, uh, precisely because of its artificial nature. I remember before we finish. Uh, an East German friend remarking to me um, as a joke, a quiet joke, the sort you don't tell when you think somebody might be listening. He said, I've heard that they're thinking of changing the name from the German Democratic Republic to the Central European Republic, (laughs) just in case people start getting nationalistic. (laughs) And uh, that was the position that East Germany found itself in. They can never really... um, be a German state. They had to kind of, they were a state where everybody spoke German, but never really talked about being German in any kind of meaningful historical sense. Uh, So it's a very curious thing and, and, and I think fascinating to study and think about. If you'd like to buy the book and help the podcast, click on the link in your podcast app. There's also further information on this episode in our show notes, which can also be found as a link in your podcast app. If you like what you're hearing, you can sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.